Chapter Twenty of The Bridge of History Over the Gulf of Time: A Popular View of the Historical Evidence for the Truth of Christianity, by Thomas Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Brett W. Downey. Chapter Twenty: Leben Jesu, Doctor David Friedrich Strauss. In the year 1834, a book was published at Berlin by Dr. David Friedrich Strauss, a young professor of the University of Tübingen, and, of course, a professor of the Lutheran faith. His book is usually known by a part of its German title, Leben Jesu, or Life of Jesus, but its complete title, Das Leben Jesu bearbeitet, means The Life of Jesus Critically Worked At, an odd title to give a book. Only a very few years ago, you know, the other life of Jesus, the Vie de Jésus of Monsieur Renan, professor of Oriental history in the great French Academy, was issued. The theories of these writers, but chiefly the Leben Jesu of Strauss, may be truthfully said to have fascinated thousands of minds and to have led away troops of young, earnest students and thinkers on the continent, while they have also been detrimental to the faith of many in our own country. And what is maintained by the teachers of this mythical theory? Do they say that no such person as Jesus of Nazareth ever existed? Oh, no! They could not commit themselves to such rashness, for they are scholars in a high sense of the word. Renan is understood to be a profound Oriental scholar, and the classical attainments of Strauss are understood to be as great as his power of analysis. I need scarcely say that men of such intellectual caliber and achievements know that they have no right to take up any ancient volume which professes to be history, and cross out any personal name in it that does not suit them, affirming that no such person ever existed. They know they might as well and wisely affirm that Julius Caesar never existed, or that Alexander the Great never existed, as that there never was such a human person as Jesus of Nazareth in the world. No, they agree that such a person existed, at the time when, and in the country where, he is related, in the Gospels, to have existed. They agree that he was born of poor parents, but that he had naturally a large mind and a richly philanthropic heart, that he had a highly religious mind, and had a strong belief in the ancient prophecy that the Messiah, the great Deliverer, should come and regenerate the world and deliver it from error and evil, that he yearned over the sufferings of the poor himself, and believed that his heavenly Father would deliver the world from the wrong he saw in it, and deplored. And they agree that he doted on this conception, and earnestly went forth proclaiming, The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand! And that, at length, he doted on this conception so deeply, and longed so fervently for its realization, that he came to believe himself to be this Messiah. It was, simply, an instance of that common procedure of the human mind wherein the wish is father to the thought, wherein we burn with desire to see a fact accomplished, until we persuade ourselves it is accomplished in ourselves. Jesus, it is affirmed, did not arrive at this belief respecting himself all at once, but by degrees. During the course of his ministry, when he began to be regarded as a prophet, and therefore as possessed of miraculous powers, persons afflicted with various diseases were brought to him, that he might exercise his curative skill upon them. Strauss and Renan alike deny that any miracles were ever performed by Christ. There are no miracles. There can be no miracles, they affirm. It is 
unscientific, to believe in miracles. God governs by fixed laws. That is to say, he has fixed himself. He can, or will, neither suspend nor transcend his own laws. He is like a great mechanist, who has formed the universe as a splendid machine, and has wound it up, and left it to go by itself. He cannot, or will not, interfere with it. The laws of nature are fixed laws. Perhaps some seeming cures were performed by Jesus of Nazareth, thinks Strauss, some seeming cures of comparatively slight disorders. The effect, perhaps, of what we now call mesmerism, or animal magnetism. In some instances, perhaps, these seeming cures were simply the effect of nervous sympathy on the part of the patient with this Jesus, who was so loudly reported to be a great healer of disease, by a touch, or by a word, or a look. The persons so considered to be cured passed into obscurity, and nothing more was known of them. But as mankind are naturally disposed to make a thing that is a little marvellous still more marvellous by talking about it, like the story of the three black crows, so these seeming cures were magnified into real miracles. Eventually this remarkable person was put to death. Well, reasoned Strauss, there is nothing wonderful about that. Socrates was put to death. The truly great and good have been put to death in all ages. There is no wonder that when a man rises up to beard wickedness in high places, he loses his life. If Jesus of Nazareth would persevere in reprehending the hypocritical and powerful Pharisees in the way that he did, there can be no wonder that they never rested till they had his heart's blood. And what about Christ's resurrection from the dead? Oh, that is utterly incredible, according to Strauss and Renan. Christ never rose from the dead any more than we shall rise from the dead. The fable of the resurrection arose from the simple credulity of a few weak women and ignorant men, who were fondly attached to this Jesus of Nazareth. They loved their master, for he had shown them great love and tenderness. They longed to see him again, and perhaps, in some moments of self-exultant thought, he had uttered those words attributed to him. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. Speaking of his own body, and so they were encouraged to expect his resurrection. First, one enthusiastic woman imagined she had seen him again alive, and heard him speak. Her story wrought on the imagination of others, till they, as fully as herself, believed that they had also seen him. And thus the women from Galilee and the disciples persuaded one another till they grew into a fervid band of resurrection preachers, and persuaded thousands to believe in the resurrection as firmly as themselves. Nay, they continued to believe and continued to preach, until many of them had laid down their lives in attestation of their belief in what they affirmed that they had seen their master after he rose again from the dead. And is this, you say, really the wonderful mythical theory of Strauss? It is indeed, as wild as it seems for a man of such famed logical power to have invented it. Summed up, it means this, that the reason why upwards of three hundred millions of human beings are now numbered among the professors of Christianity, the reason why the highest and wisest nations of the earth now profess this religion, and why millions upon millions have professed it in past centuries, is solely because a weak, fanatical woman first imagined she saw Jesus in the garden where his sepulchre was, and that he spoke to her. Yet she never saw him, and he never spoke to her at all, and because the other women, her companions, set on by her example, also took to imagining that they met Christ, and he spoke to them, yet they never met him, and he never spoke to them at all, and because ten men, 
in a room with doors shut, all took to dreaming at the same time, with their eyes wide open, that the same Jesus, whom they knew, and who had been crucified and buried, stood alive before them, and spake, and showed them the wounds in his hands and side, and because, a week after, eleven men took to dreaming in a similar way, and so on. A wild way of forming a theory, my friends, when you remember what the apostles suffered for their belief in Christ, and preaching of Christ as the risen Saviour. Yet that is the meaning of the famed mythical theory of Strauss. The mythical theory, it may be observed, receives a few additions. When the messianic conception, as Strauss calls it, and it is a favorite phrase of his, had fully taken possession of Christ's disciples and their converts, they went on to imagine, and set down to his account, many and marvelous deeds he had never dreamt of performing. They reasoned, for instance, since he was really the Messiah, that he must have fulfilled his types. Well, Moses and Elijah were types of Christ, and they were related to each have fasted forty days and forty nights. So they set it down that Christ did the like, not from the spirit of falsehood, but from devout faith in the true messiahship of Jesus. He must have fulfilled his types. Thus the catalogue of miracles grew, until it swelled to the size it now wears in our Gospels. I want you now, if you please, to note well and fasten in your minds one remarkable fact as connected with a date, A.D. 175, which I have already mentioned. It is this, that Strauss himself grants what every real scholar in the world grants, whether skeptical or Christian. What Lord Bolingbroke, among our old English freethinkers, grants, as you may see in his Letters on the Study of History, that the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so-called, were in the possession of the Christian Church at least as early as that year, that they were at that time in the Greek tongue, but that they contained the same accounts of miracles, parables, journeys, and other transactions and circumstances of the life of Jesus as our Gospels contain at this day and that they were held by the Christian church of that time to be authentic, the genuine and veritable memoirs of their master. But, argues Strauss, no one knows who wrote these Gospels. Nobody knows where they were written, or when they were written. Perhaps some of the disciples of this Jesus of Nazareth wrote some short accounts of him, but they never could have written books of the length and having the contents of our Gospels, for they never saw the miracles there related, since those miracles were never performed. They very likely wrote short accounts of very simple character, and others added more marvelous stories to these simple accounts, and so the books grew larger by repeated additions, till the books became the bulk and nature that we see they have now. And, insists Strauss, between the date A.D. 33, when this Jesus died, and A.D. 175, being 142 years, there is ample time for the formation of these marvelous books by successive accretions of the more marvelous, there is ample time for the growth and expansion of the mythical element. And you may see its growth, palpably for yourself, asserts Strauss, if you will only slightly exert your critical faculty. It is so very evident in the so-called four Gospels. For instance, Jesus is affirmed generally in the Gospels to have raised the dead. But in the two earlier Gospels, this is a very unimportant sort of act. He enters a room where a maiden lies who had only just died, or was supposed to be dead, takes her by the hand and recalls her to life, or seems to do so. When you get to the later written Gospels, called by the name of Luke, Christ again is related to have raised the dead, but this time it is a story of increased marvelousness. The widow's son of Nain had been dead some time, 
for he was being borne on a bier to the place of burial, and Christ recalls him to life. But how the mythical element has grown when you come to the gospel said to have been written and published by John at the close of the first Christian century. Jesus now raises to life Lazarus, a man who had not only been dead some time, but who had been four days in the tomb, and whose body, according to his own sister's account, must have been in a state of putrefaction. You may thus trace out and detect for yourself the mythical, the legendary, the fabulous character of the great part of the four Gospels, declares Strauss, and clearly satisfy yourself that they are unworthy of being received as the body of historical truth or fact. These are strong blows to strike at a weak Christian, strong blows to strike at the faith of a good but not very intelligent or well-informed man. Such a man is likely to regard a man of logic and learning with a degree of awe, and if the man of logic and learning tells him that he is cleaving for salvation, to what is told him in a book that is unworthy of his belief, for nobody knows who wrote the four Gospels, nobody knows where they were written, or when they were written, the blows are very likely to be too strong for him. These blows have knocked many a man down, to my certain knowledge, many a man who has never gotten up again. But now let us take courage, my friends, and dare the weight of these blows. Let us examine for ourselves what the strong assertions of Strauss are worth. Nobody knows who wrote the Gospels? What is the exact meaning of Strauss? He cannot mean that they are anonymous books, books written without any author's names being attached to them, because he and the world know that they are called the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then what does he mean? Is it that, although the books are called by these names, we have no reason to think that they are the right names? Why? Who produces evidence that they are the wrong names? No one. Then why should we deem them to be the wrong names? How do we judge, and how do we believe, respecting the authorship of other ancient books, books written as early and even earlier than the four Gospels? What is the foundation for what we regard to be our true knowledge of the authorship of other ancient books? How do we know that Caesar wrote the Commentaries on the Gaelic War? How do we know that Virgil wrote the Aeneid? I purposely select two of the best known, the most universally known, of ancient books. How do we know that Caesar and Virgil are the true names of the authors of these books? How do we know? Because these are the names the books have borne ever since they were heard of. They have never been called by any other names. No sane person ever arose in the ancient time and said, Caesar was not the name of the person who wrote the commentaries on the Gaelic War. The author's true name was so-and-so. Any more than any sane man is said to be found now who says that. No sane person ever arose in ancient time and said, Virgil is not the name of the poet who composed the Aeneid. The author's true name was so-and-so. Any more than any sane man is to be found now who says that. Scholars would regard a man as of unsound mind, who asserted his belief that we did not know the true names of these, or of the other Latin classics generally. Then why am I not to regard the names as equally certain when I turn to the four Gospels? Just as I believe I am certain, and sure when I say that Caesar and Virgil wrote the Commentaries and the Aeneid, why am I not to feel equally certain and sure when I say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the Gospels that bear their names? These are the authors' names that the Gospels have borne ever since they were heard of. They have never borne any other names. No person ever arose in the ancient time and said, Matthew, surnamed Levi, was not the name of the man who wrote that Gospel. The man's real name was so-and-so. Any more than a skeptic dares to arise nowadays and say, Matthew write that book you call a gospel? 
No such thing. The name of the man who really did write that book was so-and-so. No person ever arose in the ancient time and said, John, whose surname was Mark, was not the name of the man who wrote that book you call a gospel. The man's real name was so-and-so. Any more than a skeptic dares to arise nowadays and say, Mark, write that book you call a gospel? No such thing. The real name of the writer of that book was so-and-so. Now, why am I not to regard myself as certain and sure in the one case as in the other? I will suppose that I have an intelligent and candid skeptic present, and I will put the case to him. What do you think, I say to him, of the interrogatory parallel, or the duplicate question I put before you? What do you think of its fairness? Why am I not bound to believe as firmly in the one case as in the other? Fairness, he will reply. Fairness? No sensible or candid man can doubt the fairness of the parallel or duplicate question you present to me. No doubt it is as fair on one side as on the other. I cannot deny its fairness. But then you know well enough that I do not believe in miracles, and so I do not believe the four Gospels to be real history. Nay, furthermore, I am free to tell you that I do not believe your parallel, as you call it, to be worth anything either on one side or the other. I tell you boldly, that I do not think that I am bound to believe absolutely that Caesar wrote the commentaries, and Virgil wrote the Aeneid. If that be all the evidence you can give, I may not think it worth the trouble to deny either. But I certainly do not think I am bound to believe absolutely, if that be all the evidence you can give. You say, these are the names by which these books have always been called ever since they were heard of, and they have never been called by any other names. Well, that is only very loose and lean evidence, in my judgment. Names may be given to things without fact, and with only fancy to guide the givers. Now, if you could give me circumstantial evidence of the authorship of these books, I should be bound to receive it. Circumstantial evidence carries with it full conviction to the minds of a jury, when there is an utter absence of all positive and direct evidence. A man is on his trial for the crime of murder. There is not a single witness who can swear, I saw him murder the man. There is not one who can swear to witnessing the direct and actual commission of the murder, or the striking of the blow that caused it. But the accused was known to have a deep quarrel with the murdered man, was seen near the scene of the murder, close upon the time when it must have been committed, and the witnesses who saw him noted his disordered look, and manner, and soiled and torn dress. An instrument was found lying by the murdered man. With that instrument the murder had evidently been committed. That instrument was stamped with the initials of the accused, and there are witnesses who swear they had often seen it in his hands. Furthermore, the clayey soil where the murdered man was found bore marks of a struggle, and a frequent footmark was noticed in the clay. The shoe of the accused fitted it exactly. This is what is called circumstantial evidence, and the jury say guilty when it has all been clearly laid before them, and they say it without hesitation. Now, can you give me circumstantial evidence, clear and substantial evidence of that nature? demands the doubter. You say Caesar wrote the commentaries on the Gaelic War. Now give me the circumstantial evidence. When did he begin to write them? You cannot tell me the exact year of his age, or the year of Rome. Could you answer the question in a looser and more general way? Did he begin to write the commentaries before he crossed the Rubicon, or was it soon after? How old was he, and where was he living when he finished the second book, De Bello Gallico, and how long afterwards did he finish the fifth book? You believe that Virgil wrote the Aeneid. Tell me, where he began to write it? Was it at Mantua, his birthplace? Was it at Rome? Was it at Verona, 
or can you name some other city in Italy, and assure me that there Virgil began to write the Aeneid? How old was he, and where exactly was he living when he finished the second book, the sixth, the tenth? The reply is that none of these questions can be answered. Antiquity has not left us the means of answering them, nor can such questions be answered with exactness respecting any book of antiquity that I am aware of. But if anyone asks me for circumstantial evidence respecting the authorship of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I tell him that it can be given with a length and breadth and strength that cannot be given for any other, even of the most highly valued and most celebrated works of antiquity. I now entreat your close and wakeful attention to the circumstantial evidence for the authorship of the four Gospels, while I endeavor to rehearse it in your hearing as briefly and clearly as I can, I entreat you to give all your power of attention to the inquiry. It is a most vital one for time and eternity to you and me. What is it, I ask again, that Strauss affirms? Nobody knows who wrote the four Gospels? Nobody knows where they were written or when they were written? I say again that when Strauss affirms that nobody knows who wrote the Gospels, he cannot mean that they are anonymous books books without authors' names. He knows that they are called the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then what does he mean? I ask again, does he mean that, supposing they really are the right names, yet the names are worthless to us, for nobody knows who these people were? They are mere men in the moon. There is no historical identity about them. There is nothing on record to connect them with the history they narrate, if it be a history. But if this really be what Strauss means, the simple reply is, it is not true. End of chapter. Recording by Brett Downey.